Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Doom to Bloom podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Skip Sams, who's going to talk to us about his struggle with addiction and in recovery. Hi, Skip. Hi there. Thanks for having me on here today. Well, thank you for being a guest. And just before we jump into your journey, I always like to ask my guests where they are coming from. Chicago. Woo! Chicago. That's amazing. I just, I find it really fascinating how the world is so large, but then at the click of a button, we can connect with anybody literally anywhere. So I always just like to ask just to, I don't know, just to be curious. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And I kind of gave a little summary there that you're going to talk to us about your struggle with addiction and recovery. Yeah. We are ready to hear your story when you are ready to tell us. Oh, you just want me to like, jump right in there? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, well, my um, I will first say that I have been sober since uh, April 20th, 2006. Amazing. Uh, and uh, that is 4.20 for the pot smokers out there. You know <laughs> what that means. Um, which is kind of ironic. Uh, and it is because I smoked a joint on the 19th of April that 420 is my is my clean date, my sobriety date. Um, where to jump in on my story? That's, how about the beginning? How about the beginning? <laughs> well, that's that's like, oh, my God, do we go all the way back to like when I was three years old and I started singing? Probably because a lot of my story has to do with... Um, you know, I I identify very much of uh, my identity is I am a musician, and that has been my lifelong career. It's not necessarily how I've made it all my money, but uh, uh, any of their musicians out there hearing that, they understand the joke. But um, I started singing when I was three years old. I had the um opportunity because my father is a minister and when you're the minister's kid you you know you get a spotlight if you want it and also as you'll hear later in my story when you don't want it um but i sang my first solo and people loved it you know they love seeing the minister's kids up kid up there and you know they applauded and i was just like i love this you know so i started singing um a lot and um when i was five i started tap dancing which was a lot of fun and i loved that and so there's music oh my mom was the uh church organist and choir director so i got a lot of music um uh influence but also support from her a lot of encouragement you know they made sure when i was five i started piano lessons um, I wanted so badly to start voice lessons, but she wouldn't let me start until my voice changed. She's like, well, after your voice changes. But, um, you know, I, part of my singing was singing for, you know, it was in church and having this opportunity. Or, yeah, it was an opportunity, but having this platform it was all about God and how much, um, you know, how, how it was about a relationship with God of the, I call it the religion of my origin. And, um, you know, when I was about 10 and getting to those years of almost puberty, and I started to realize all my boyfriends all my all the guys are like they like these girls but i like the boys that like the girls you know and so i started to realize that um it's uh i'm gay and i saw that that was about the time uh it was in the mid 70s and in the mid 70s um it was still considered until 1975, it was considered a mental illness, uh, homosexuality was. 
And it that was, makes me so angry to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so when I was figuring this stuff out, it was on the news a lot because uh, we have in America this lady named uh, Anita Bryant, and she was um, she was she had um, a um, I forget the word. Um, she was on a mission and to out all the public school teachers who were gay because she was like they were recruiting uh, the kids and sound familiar yes unfortunately <laughs> yes and it's yes. also crazy to think that that really wasn't that long ago no no and we started to make so much progress and here we are again right back um to you know making people afraid that gay people are and and transgender people are just people who have a different um who are different are trying to like recruit your kids and it's all it's all based on fear and but anyway i mean what that was happening then so i saw it every night on the news and you know i used to be very resentful of anita bryant because of all the all the shit that she started but when i got into recovery many years later and started doing my step work and my forgiveness work i realized that she actually did me a favor because as i was starting to figure out that i'm gay and like i'm so different than every all the other guys around me because of what she was doing and it was on the news every night i realized hey i'm not the only one there are other people in the world that are like me and i didn't learn that at school i didn't learn that from a teacher you know um what i also learned at that time because she was very much evangelical um was that you know i always heard that god loves me but now he was hearing god loves you but you're going to hell mm -hmm. and that that you know we all have, I don't mean to make mine more special or different than anyone's. Mine, mine experience is mine. So for me, as a, any kid going through puberty, it's difficult. For me, it was figuring out that I'm gay and that um, everything that I've been taught about religion does not affirm who I am. In fact, I'm a sinner. So everything about me and that I'm feeling is wrong. And, uh, you know, so that's, I really, I started to pray, God, don't let me be gay. Don't let me be gay. At the same time, I'm so curious about what's going on and there's nowhere to talk about it. There's no conversations going on about it except for what you hear on the news. Um, my, it was not even in my parents' consciousness, you know, that I might be gay and that they might have a gay kid. Um, and I started doing my own research and I did not, we didn't have books you know, that they're trying to ban like in, in some states in the United States today about you know, identity or anything. I I was 12 years old and I went to the main library in Columbus and was looking up um, books that were meant for psychiatrists and psychologists and that were new books that were teaching that, you know, homosexuality is not a um, mental illness. And it was giving background on um it was giving the background of like homosexual lives and how they're brought up and so forth so that psychiatrists could treat um people who were coming in and to affirm and to you know because a lot of them up until then were told you know you can't treat this so i found these books at 12 years old and they're first psychiatrist. So they're not really the kind of books that you ban, right? 
But in these books, because they're written for adults, one book in particular talked about how young, how, how um, it did talk about how some young men um, become, especially uh, boys on the streets in the cities, uh, prostitute themselves. And it told how they find, like where they go and how they find the men and so forth. And I'm 12 years old and I read that. And I'm like, I'm going to try that. You know, I'm going to go to those places. And it's, um, so at 13, I became active sexually. And I have on one hand, this boy who is inside, who is praying, God, don't let me be gay. And on the other hand, there's nowhere to talk about it. And I need someone to talk about it and someone who understands and will affirm that I'm okay. And I am going and seeking this out in the totally wrong places that any kid should be. And, um, you know, I, I, I tell that especially today because, you know, the conversations that we are having that people are trying not to have in the school, how much damage that does, um, not only just for, you know, rights and so forth, but for the individual students like me, you know, because kids are going to find out they're going to, you know, especially today with the internet, kids are going to find out what they find out. And who knows if it's going to be right information or wrong information. And they're not, if it's forbidden to talk about, they will not talk about it with adults. And they, it's shunned. They won't have permission. And what that did for me is at a very early age, I started to live a double life. And that was, that was great training for how to be a really good addict um, to live that double life. So I kept, you know, I even start, uh, at 14, I started preaching. I was singing at uh, different youth rallies around the state and preaching and, and thinking that if I do this, God won't, you know, God will save me and I won't be gay. But then on the other hand, I'm going and I'm still acting out and, um, so that was, it got to the point where I was 15 or 16, I became bulimic because I, you know, just allowed my body to be abused for so, you know, so much over the years already that I wanted some control back over it. And I hated myself so much that when I looked in the mirror, I was just disgusted. So binging and purging became the way I coped. And I went to Bible college for a year and a half. Again, hoping that, um, you know, maybe God would take this away. Um, the first year I was there, actually, one of my professors found out that I was gay. And he told me I had to go to conversion therapy. Um, and, uh, or he was going to tell my parents, kick me out of school and tell my parents. I was more afraid of them telling my parents at that point. I was... 17 when I started college. I was a year and a half and actually the the girl I was dating who was like my best friend on my sophomore year helped me talk it through and I had the opportunity to go to a music school in Los Angeles and she was like you need to do that and um, experience being out of the closet away from your family and and that's what I did. Um, I moved there when I was 19 and that was also a time that I made a decision or I was, I was starting to make a decision that um, I'm either going to have to choose God or I'm going to have to choose my authentic self because I realized I can't pray this away, that it is who I am and that I could not believe that I was created to go to hell, you know. Um, so I got to get some water. 
I, um, at that time I started to, um, is when I when I was in Los Angeles is when I was introduced to cocaine and Long Island iced teas on the same night. And that was the start of the addiction. And, you know, having this you know, having this faith or, you know, separating from this belief in, in this God um, left this big empty hole in my heart you know, in my soul and not, and, you know, I just filled it with drugs and alcohol and, and sex and just trying to fill this hole. And I did that for years. Um, you know, I, and this, when I moved to Los Angeles and I was studying music, I was doing okay. I mean, I was doing well. I went to a school and I was learning, um, but the reason I was doing it wasn't really clear because uh, it wasn't for um, God anymore. And so that was that also was part of that hole that was there. Like, why am I doing this? And I would find some success. I would start to, uh, you know, like I had a band at one time and then it fell apart. Um, I started a recording studio, a small one, and, and, you know, I never really saw that through. Um, you know, I, I recorded some and then never really did anything with it. I would get into a play and I would have some success getting into a musical. And then, you know, every time I'd have a little bit of success, I would totally self-sabotage it by just diving a little bit more into drugs and alcohol. Um, I, there was a lot of self-worth issues. And nothing I did seemed to fill that hole. When I was... That went on for like 10 years, 19 to 29. When I was 29, um, I went um, back to, oh, I was in and out of college too. I mean, that was another thing. I would get a year of school and I would drop out. Um, I went, I finally took me seven school or six schools. One of them I went back to and 12 years to get my four-year degree. Um, but the last time I went back to school, um, I did really well. And I got to have the experience while I was back in Los Angeles to write and produce um, a musical. And it was, uh, went live in, in, in Los Angeles. And, and that, was, that was really exciting. And I had a lot of success from that. Um, during that time when I was there, I started diving in, I was introduced a little more to crystal meth. And um, after the musical was done, I dove more into crystal meth. I was like, okay, let's dig this hole again. Um, you know, and then I, there was a point where I, then I moved to Chicago and there was no crystal meth. So I just went back to drinking and smoking pot, but that was all the time, all the time. When I was in Chicago, I started a recording studio downtown in the loop. And that's, this is when I started really progressing because I was, you know, I wasn't rich. I wasn't famous, but I, I started a recording studio. I started my own label. I had uh, my first national album out and then I had uh, signed my first celebrity, uh, national celebrity to my label. And all the, uh, um, a lot of the cabaret singers and so forth in Chicago, they were getting to know me and they would come to me and ask me to produce their, their albums and their CDs and so forth. So I, I was up and coming, but I started, I found Crystal Meth again and in uh, 2000, I think it was 2001. And I started using more and more and more. And then somebody showed me how to smoke it. And once I did that, it was, it was all over.
it wasn't too long after I started smoking it that I, you know, there was a day I was going down Lakeshore Drive and it was so beautiful. It was a fall day and I was looking around at the leaves and the leaves were so vibrant, you know, because that that fall sun was on on the colored leaves and the um, the sky was just so blue. And I'm, you know, I'm looking around at all this beauty and my thought was, I'm going to close my recording studio and become a crystal meth dealer. And that's how insane it is, you know, because I, I figured out that if I could sell it, then I could use for free. So I, I uh, left the recording studio. I left the label. I just left it and started using full time. Um, it wasn't long after that that I started even doing intravenously. And I did that for three years. And um, at the end of the three, and, and, and so this is whether it's a gay community or a straight community, it doesn't matter. But a lot of people, many people who are on crystal meth also have a... Um, uh, it becomes a problem uh, with promiscuous sex a lot too. And so I did that quite a bit again. And at the end of three years, um, you know, I started that and I started at the end of 2002 is when I started selling. And it was in the early 2006. One morning I came to and I was just like, you know, I had been so depressed I would have people over my house um, to buy drugs. Many would, you know, there would be guys in the other room like with an orgy going on. And I would be out in my living room just curled up in a ball on the couch feeling so alone. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to have sex anymore. I didn't, I didn't want any of that anymore. I just wanted to be held. And that hole that it has always been there was just darkness, you know, nothing, not enough food, not enough sex, not enough drugs, not enough uh, anything would fill it. So I came to one morning and I thought I was 39. And I just had this thought like today is the day the pain ends, you know, um, just go jump in front of the L train and end it. And the L train is um, what, our subway here in Chicago. And I, I had been afraid to get on the L for a couple months. And the reason is I, I thought I would, um, well, I kept having this vision of falling in front of the train. And whether it was on purpose or I did it by accident it didn't matter. I just kept visualizing that um, when I would be on the on the platform and the train would come in, I'd be holding on to the light post just to make sure I didn't fall or I didn't jump. So this day when I when I said just just go do it, it's not it's it was a thought before, but today that was a plan. And. I had, you know, I've been clinically depressed for years. At one point, I was diagnosed bipolar. And so I wasn't new to the, the ideolation of suicide. I never made a plan. And I thought, you are 39, almost 40. In the last 20 years of your life, every opportunity that life has given you, you have just thrown away. And your life, you know, you're, you're, you have nothing to show for it and you have nothing to offer this world. Just go do it. Just end it. And there was something about, uh, miraculous actually, but there was something about that thinking of, well, I'm almost 40 and I messed up the 20, last 20 years. That's half my life. There was something about that. And then that moment of desperation that. I thought, well, wait a minute. What if you do something the next 20 years? And then 
you'll only be 60 and 60 is not that old anymore. And wow, then you could live to be 80. And that just blew me away because I had never really visualized my life past 40. And the thought that came and changed everything this time was your life doesn't have to be over. It could be half over. And that was a moment of today. I, I see it as my first experience with God of my understanding, G-O-D, gift of desperation. And uh, I knew I wanted to live. I went uh, and got help. Um, and uh, two weeks later, I was in, that was the beginning of April. I had stopped crystal meth right away. I'd still, you know, I thought I would be able to smoke pot and drink. Um, but uh, April 20th, 2006, I went to rehab and I went there for two months. Now, I, in rehab, I was introduced to the 12 steps and I had been to different anonymous programs um, and seen the 12 steps on the wall. And I always like would leave because that third step is we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And I'm like, what are these fucking drunken derelicts going to tell me about God? I know <laughs> about God, you know, and God says he loves me, but he's going to send me to hell. So no, thank you very much. I don't need that. I will leave. This time in that desperation and I got to rehab and I saw that on the wall, I saw something I had not really paid attention to before or at least understood. And that is that step three says we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And that part is underlined and italicized. I mean, that's how important that is to the 12 steps as we understood him. And it just rocked my, rocked my world. And after a couple of seconds of thinking about him, I was like, wait, I, I, I don't have to believe I could, I can change my belief about the God I grew up with. Um, and one of the first things was, well, I've never understood why God has a gender, like why God is a man. And there was never any, you know, that I don't want to, you know, I just never made that sense to me. So I was like, I don't know what, what it is. So I just said to myself, I, um, turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand God and just took that out of there. And for me, that made sense. Um, and I learned that really quickly that um, one of the things is, you know, when finding out what, what I believe God is, is to find out what I believe God is not. And so I started that exploration and doing um, some of the steps and I got a sponsor and with drug therapists and drug counselors and, and realized that, um, and to this day, what God is, who God is, is a question mark. And I don't ever want to say that I know what God is. Um, for me, it started with the very simple belief of the group of drug addicts in recovery or the group of drunks that I would meet with uh, in that circle. Um, that to me, that G-O-D group of drunks, that was my the beginning of my God, that fellowship, because I'm powerless um, to get it, but together we're empowered. And together we're empowered to keep each other clean and to keep each other sober and to carry the message to help other um, people who are uh, trying to get sober. And what was awesome about this is here's a spiritual community that I'm included 
right? And I'm I'm empowered, but I'm also included. And that was just an amazing feeling. So I started that journey of getting sober and self-exploration and and starting to question all my beliefs, but in a good way, you know, and to really look at things and like, what do I believe? When I got home from rehab, I went to my mother's house and tried to play the piano. I sat down to play the piano and mind you, I had not played since, um, um, I went to, since I left the studio and I would try to play a simple chord and uh, I couldn't, I couldn't play. I mean, I couldn't play a simple chord, even though I knew in my head what it could be. There was just the crystal meth had changed the function of my mind to my hands. Um, I wasn't able to sing. And I realized that the, and it felt like I had, I had, I had lost my music. I had lost my musical abilities and I, it felt like a part of me had died. And I was grieving that. At the same time, I knew I was sober and that I wanted to live. And if, you know, if I lost my music, that's, 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 uh, and I'm never going to get it back. Well, I'll just have to learn to live with that because I'm sober and I want to stay alive. Um, but I found I needed an outlet for creativity. So I started taking some art classes at the community college. You know, I didn't need college credit or anything, but it was a great place to take some classes. And I just needed an outlet for creativity. So I took a painting class. I took some stained glass. I took a drawing class. Um, and I, I mean, I sucked. I was getting, because it was school, I got graded and I was getting gratuitous Ds you know, when they really should have been Fs. And what I noticed was as the months went, went on, my grades were getting better. Um, and after, before that, even at the end of that school year, I actually even sold a painting. And I came to realize one day that if I can take something that I didn't even know about and artistic and get better why can't i do that with music and i pulled out my or i went and got some new um, elementary piano books the kind that you you know that i learned when i was five years old um started working on my scales the very basic things and i taught myself to, you know, to relearn how to play and to recognize music theory and just, you know, it started to come back, but it, it took a year. Um, and I realized that music was always there and I didn't lose my music. I abandoned it. It did not abandon me. When I, when I decided to close that recording studio, I abandoned my career. I abandoned my music. I I abandoned it. Just as I, you know, I always thought my I lost my family or my family abandoned me. That's not true. They had to cut communication off with me because they saw I was killing myself and they couldn't do anything about it. Um, and so I abandoned them long before they abandoned me. And so I... I started to realize that music is like, a, was like a best friend. 
<laughs> music is like a best friend always always there waiting for me just like the dog is there your best friend um and uh i actually went back to I'm, i got enough of it back i thought let's continue this with the education and i already have my bachelor's but i applied to go back to um grad school and um went and studied film scoring and things started to really happen. I started scoring film. Uh, I actually went to New York to learn to tap dance uh, again, because I had quit when I was 15. Uh, I was 45 and I moved to New York to learn to tap dance. Um, I started a school in Columbus, an elementary school for the undisturbed. It was a, a charter school uh, that specialized in performing arts. And I got to help start that. I um, put together a new band. Um, I did some more recording. You know, things started to come back. And it was a long process. But I got to reclaim my creativity. And it wasn't in the way I thought it would. Now, what what had happened was that creativity began to fill that hole. And I realized that hole that had always been there, that I had been trying to fill, that at one point I was very creative with, and the purpose was for God, the God of my understanding when I was a child. Um, now in recovery, and I'm doing music, and I'm doing work on myself and I'm doing my forgiveness work and I'm finding out that I am worthy and that I am lovable and that I am a loving person and that I am greatly loved. And people are telling me that they're seeing my light come on. And it's, I realize this hole is supposed to be there because this hole is the space where creativity lives. And if it's empty, that leaves room for uh, the muse or spirit to come in and to create. And uh, it's the word inspired literally says in spirit, right? So if I have this, if I have this hole and I allow creativity to take place then i'm able to um to fulfill what i think is my life's purpose and that is to bring joy and um through through music and to inspire others through music and i've at the same time i've got a purpose and uh this time it's really my my purpose today is just to allow my light to shine, not to show the world how great I am, but so that if my light shines, it will help your you recognize your light. It'll help you realize that you too have have gifts and that you can explore and you too have the opportunity to have a spiritual life that has nothing to do with a religion that um, tore you down, but you can actually use your creativity and your music to lift yourself up. And I had a, I, you know, when I get in, you know, I do have a, a bipolar disorder and there are times, and I've been, it's been very well managed since I've got sober, but there are still times that, I, you know, I, I start to spiral down in depression. And it's in those times that um, I write some of the most positive lyrics possible um, because it's, it's what I need to hear um, and it's what I want to share. And I just have this vision of, you know, if I can help other people out of their darkness and I'm holding a lamp 
I see, I visualize like being in this dark cave and I'm holding up this lamp so that we can all get out of there. Um, I'm holding this lamp up for them, but what's happening is I'm also holding it up for me so I can get out of that darkness. And music is a way that I can do that. Um, you know, in 2004, I was diagnosed with another really um, big part of the story is um, what I've, well, 2004, I was diagnosed with HIV. 2006, I got sober. Um, it was around that time also that I was diagnosed having bipolar disorder. And through my recovery work, I've realized it's very important. This is one thing that really attracted me to your, your um, podcast. It's very important. The most important words that we can say that define our present moment and who we are right now and that will guide us into who we are going to be in the future are the words we put after I am. And we have to be very careful um, about that. Uh, I used to say I'm HIV, I'm bipolar. Um, that is not true. I am not HIV. I'm not an infectious disease. I have HIV. And that is part of my human experience, but it does not define me. I have, I'm, I'm not bipolar. I am not a mental illness. I have a bipolar disorder and that diagnosis, you know, because of that diagnosis, we know how to treat it and, um, but it does not define me. And with, Addiction, you know, we, you know, I will still claim I am an addict, um, but I know I am not the disease of addiction. And there are times that we can use words that empower us. So, for instance, I will say I'm not, I, I won't say I'm HIV, but I will say I am POS, P-O-Z. And the reason that is back in the 80s um, when uh, HIV and AIDS was all amok and people were dying everywhere and they weren't getting any help or um, people were starting to say, I am pause. And they took that as empowerment, the pause community coming together um, and so that using that word as empowerment, it was a political statement. It was also a personal empowerment statement. Um, so when I say along the same lines, when I say I am an addict, I am when I'm with that group of recovering addicts, there is empowerment in that. So there's also a vigilance and I'm an addict. So I'm, I'm not the diagnosis and I am recovering, but I am an addict. So I cannot have one drink because I'm an addict, but it's, so there's, there's that. It's also empowering. Like I'm an addict. These are my people together. We are working together. Um, but it's it's a very conscious choice when when I use those words. Now, I'm talking about all that, and we haven't even talked about. I am a musician. Um, I am a son. I am uh, um, a person who does a lot of um, community work. You know, I I am generous. I am loving. I, I'm a coach today, you know, I'm, I'm a life coach. I work with musicians and artists in recovery who are reclaiming their creativity and figuring out their new musical identity and sobriety um, along what I did. So, you know, I hope that over what took me years of doing on my own that I can help some others. Um, 
but that's that's really the the message that um and that's really the message of my music today um is i am amazing and i don't and and to be able to claim that the other thing about i am is you know it's 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 okay for our society to say i am ugly i am fat um and we also get a lot of reward for saying that because we'll hear back oh skip you're not fat skip you're not ugly skip you're very handsome you know and uh so it's okay for us to put ourselves down and we actually get rewarded for it. The moment we say, many people say, and I have to watch myself on this, like, I am smart, I'm intelligent, I, I, I am handsome, I, you know, anything that people say that is positive, what do we think? Oh my God, they're so full of themselves, right? And when they're claiming their truth, when someone is claiming their truth. So when I'm claiming my truth and not coming from a place of ego, but a place of recognizing what my truth is, then that's empowering for me. And that also helps me shine my light and others can see that. So I am amazing. You are amazing. Um, we're all on an amazing journey. I know it sounds kind of trippy, but it's, it's we're all on this journey. We all have our vices. We all have our different addictions that we have to come over um, th to get over. And they teach us valuable lessons to help us to better ourselves. And so that we can be the person that we want to be and that we can grow into that person. And along the way, we can always say, I am where I need to be. Um, that's, I'm going to close with this because it's one of my favorite things that I, I, I learned early in recovery. Well, one is, it's none of my business what people think of me. That just frees me up so much. But if you are ever in doubt where you need to be, just look at your feet because that's exactly you're standing in the place where you need to be. Wow. I have goosebumps. <laughs> Usually skip what I do is I will ask questions based on the person's story and, you know, ask for words of wisdom and words of encouragement, but I don't feel I don't feel aligned to do that today with you. I just feel like I want to leave your story there and all of your words of wisdom and words of encouragement and just all of your empowerment and just lay it on the table for everybody that was listening. Oh, thank you. Thank and, you very much. And I just, I feel it's kind of woo-woo, I guess to say, but I almost feel like your energy is coming through in the recording and and in saying that your energy is coming through in a very positive light. So I really appreciate that, Skip. And I really appreciate you being a guest and sharing your story. And just know that I have a lot of respect for you for all the things that you have overcome and will continue to overcome. And I just think you're a great source of inspiration. Thank you for that affirmation. Thank you very much. And just before we close, is there anywhere that the listeners can find any of your socials? Yeah. Um, you can find my music, my coaching, everything. Uh, if you go to skipsams.com, there's links for, you know, if, if you're a musician or artist and, and want to work with me as a coach, um, there's links to that. Um, my... Um, yeah, Skip Sam's on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Basically, you type in my name on any of them and you're going to get it. I'm on Instagram. I'm Skip Meister. For some reason, they wouldn't let me have my name. So Skip Meister is my Instagram. Everything else, just Skip Sam's. That's S-A-M-S. 
Let me just test this theory here really quick. Okay. <laughs> You are I, correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you Google my name, that, that there's, you know, it's a unique name. So there's, uh, you'll see my, the couple pages of, of interviews and my music and so forth mixed in with Sam's club. I don't know, but I have no apostrophe in my last name. Amazing. Well, I just found you everywhere. So <laughs> I look forward to continuing to listen to well to start listening to your music and to just continue to follow along your journey and just continue to be inspired so when you listen to my music thank you when you listen to my music look for a song called how holy am i okay and after hearing my story you'll understand that is not a religious song that is a song of me reclaiming my spirituality of people telling me you know, I heard you're, you're unworthy, um, you're unforgivable, you're unclean, you know, you're unlovable. And that was me like, that's not fucking true. Fuck yourself. You know, it's like, so I'm, I am holy. I am lovable. So the song, the lyrics to the song, How Holy Am I? I light up the whole world. I am truly loving. I am totally lovable. I am um holy and fully loved and then it, the second verse is how holy you are you light up the whole world you are truly loving you are totally lovable you are holy and fully loved and that is for the listener that's not for god that's for the listener how holy you are and how holy we are amazing I wrote that down, so I will check that out myself. Awesome. I wanted to thank you again, Skip, for being a guest and sharing your story. And myself and all of the listeners know where to find you. So I'm sure you will get bombarded with a whole bunch of friend requests and follows. Um, Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) And for the listeners, we're sending you lots of love and lots of light.